Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Paolo Garcia, an attorney in New York City. She tells us how her decision to leave her traditional Mexican family at the age of 18 to live on her own shaped the entire course of her life. Only after arriving in the U.S. was she forced to see and to confront the complexities of being Mexican from a certain class, complexities she continues to question to this day. Please welcome Paola Garcia. Welcome, Paola, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question, and the question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? I think throughout my whole life, um, the event that really uh, determined everything in my life was my decision to live my home at the age of 18 without my parents' approval of permission that really determined me moving to the U.S. and staying here. And 20-some years later, I'm still living in New York. And this decision also really impacted my view of, of relationships, of what it is to be a woman, of uh, this like a almost desperate search for freedom as I understood it then and as I understand it now. I think living my home in the way I did is the most impactful thing that happened because it was, you know, I ran away pretty much and that made uh, my parents stop supporting me financially completely at the age of 18 and and really made me who I am. So you said you ran away and 18 in the U.S. is usually a time when teenagers will leave home for university. It's like the first time they actually become independent, most of us. So when you ran away, did you run away with a plan like attending a school or did you simply run away? So I was already attending the university. I grew up in a border town where coming back and forth from the U.S. is let's say like coming from Queens to Manhattan. So there's just a bridge and you come back and forth. And although in the U.S., living at 18 is perfectly acceptable and normal. Um, in Mexican culture, especially back then, and but from what I can observe, it's still the same. It's a very traditional culture where it's seen as something very shameful to leave your parents' home, especially at such a young age. So my father, of course, did not approve of this and they were becoming, you know, increasingly controlling. And all, all I wanted was to study and to have agency over my own life. And I remember having this dream to live on my own really since the age of six. And my parents were not particularly horrible or anything. It's just this inability to make your own decisions and everything being um, imposed on you and having to ask for permission for everything. And also like the role that a woman 
is supposed to play, which as far back as I have use of memory, the way women functioned in society was to me deeply unfair. And I really didn't want that. So it sounds normal if you are American, but uh, no, but it, it was a, a very, very big deal in the society I grew up and it, it was very shameful for my parents what I did, but I had to do it. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that I had the courage to do that. So this border town, where was the border connected to? Meaning, like, was it in California or Texas? Texas. So I grew up um, between the cities of Chihuahua and Juarez, which are border town with El Paso, Texas. So I was attending my undergraduate there. And so I was already in school. And basically, I called the school. I loved, uh, you know, university and Finally, being in a setting where there were, you know, more diverse people and, you know, some people from other countries. And I was so excited to be there. I I went all my life to a private Catholic school since kindergarten until I graduated high school. Sort of like high society people who are very closed and they all think and want the same. At least that's what that was my impression when I was young. And. I, I read so much and, you know, thank God I had traveled a lot, even by that age. So I felt I, I want something that expands my horizons and I want to be able to like move and do things with my life that don't involve following these patterns that I grew up in. So I want to ask something that's going to seem very loaded, which is, and you kind of made reference to the fact that you come from a certain class in Mexico, right? And most Americans, unfortunately, have this perception of Mexican people being a certain way. And I understand the stratification in the country. There's color delineations and class delineations. So once you got to the U.S. and you sort of achieved this independence, and we'll talk some more about the sort of the fallout for that, you know, in terms of your family, how was it for you to navigate this country? with kind of the the discourse around immigration, but particularly people from Mexico, and then the realities of the fact that you come from this class that's incredibly privileged in Mexico. So actually, that was a very, very interesting situation for me because it was something I didn't know about, although we went all the time to the town of El Paso to shop. This is very common. Mexicans go a lot for shopping because things are cheaper in the U.S. Like if you want to buy certain things some people, it's just we used to go there a lot and I, I had begun college, but I had no idea really of the way Mexican society is divided and, you know, how the class system operates until I left it. And similarly, El Paso, Texas is a very Mexican-American town. And I was extremely surprised by the way that I was treated, especially by the Mexican-Americans. They expressed a lot of resentment because of the fact that it was obvious that I came from a good family, although now I was on my own and I had to take, you know, all kinds of jobs, waitressing, everything, because my father thought if he stops giving me money, I'll come back. But so I encountered this, you know, dynamics that I I had no idea of, no notion of, and no idea how to navigate them either because I was almost a, a child. I grew up pretty 
shelter. So I, I really had no idea that people who are Mex like for me, they looked Mexican, but then they didn't speak Spanish. This was extremely confusing. And I, I didn't realize, I was too young to realize, like, these are people who have been in the U.S. for generations. And so in the school that I went to, the majority of Mexicans from Mexico were the sort of upper class Mexicans. It, it, you'd, so they, they would make fun of us saying that, oh, you know, this is not a fashion show and stuff like that. Like in Mexico, to go anywhere, you dress up. You, so for me, it was shocking to see like Americans go to school wearing pajamas or like this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fact that there were many Mexican looking people who spoke no Spanish, but on, uh, you know, like what I am encountering even, you know, 20 years later now is that every single day, more than once, people keep asking me where I am from. And then when I see Mexico, oh, really? But you don't look like Mexican. You are tall and you're like this. From the north, you know, Mexico is a, an extremely large and diverse country. So in the north, we are quite tall. And I realized like they could not place me with their stereotype or conception of a Mexican. And to this day, they cannot. Like, so that was very, very strange. But at the same time, I also realized how, although in Mexico, we don't check a box, whether you're white, indigenous or something, we are all Mexican. There is a very big you know, racial discrimination that goes unspoken. For example, if you are indigenous, it's unlikely that you will reach a high position in society and people just are dismissive of it. There's a growing consciousness now, but this was like the early 2000s. So it, it was quite different. So it really opened my eyes to all this kind of dynamics that I was completely unaware of because that they were all I knew. Yeah. So you brought up an interesting point of you not having the awareness that Mexico had very distinct class system and a class system that was based a lot around color and race. Right. Right. So I'm sure if you looked at your own family history, you're, you could probably trace your family back to Spain, I would imagine, or something European. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, mostly like my mom's family is all, you know, traceable to Spain with my father's family. It's a little more complicated because my grandmother's father was French and her mom was Italian. But I don't know if she was first generation or second generation, but pretty much, yes. So there are immigrants from Europe that settled in Mexico, I, I don't know, a, a couple hundred years ago. But yeah, that, that's the case. Absolutely. And because of the stratification in the Mexican culture in terms of class and race, I'm assuming that a lot of the European descendants uh, from Spain and Europe married only those who were from European descendants, right? So that there wasn't a lot of mixing with, like you said, the indigenous people that were there for centuries. So therefore, it keeps the stratification of Mexico even more so that I'm sure is still today, right? Oh, yes, very much so. They're starting to be a, a very big push to stop this. And there's been a lot of critique which didn't exist. I mean, Mexico is really evolving to a point where I almost don't recognize that there's a lot of women's rights movements and a lot of positive things are occurring also around race and Many such things, but it's going to take time. 
I have a friend from Iran and he cannot conceive of how it works because it works in such a way where you almost never interact with indigenous people. I actually didn't know any. So some of them don't speak Spanish and they live in their communities. I'm from the North, so I think the South is more sort of integrated, but in the North, I mean, of course, people are mixed, I think, you know, like the Spaniards, even when they came, they did mix that, you know, it's a different form of colonization than, let's say, the British who didn't, but you are maybe a little bit mixed, but somebody who's purely indigenous, it's very rare that you will really have any contact with them. When I went to school, the indigenous history is complete, it's inexistent. So you only learn about European history. I don't know if that has changed. I hope it has. But there's this large groups of people living in the country that are almost invisible. Like we don't know anything about them because that's how the education system was structured. And so that's why it's it's strange because at the same time, we don't have, you know, like a legal demarcation where somebody would check in the box. You are indigenous. You are this. In Mexico, everybody is a Mexican. Well, yes, but there are second-class citizens and there are the people who are, you know, sort of running the country, which are not usually the majority who are indigenous. Yeah, so it's interesting that you were able to learn the realities of Mexico, right, in terms of class and race and, and all of that. But then you're in the U.S., and the U.S. has certainly in the last 20 years become almost hysterical, right? There's a certain hysteria in this country around border towns and border crossings and influx of immigration. So how is that for you to be living in a country where you can feel sort of the venom toward these people who just want to come and they're actually your own countrymen, but at the same time, never being viewed as one of them, right? Right. So honestly, this has been very, very difficult for me, and not only regarding Mexicans, but you know, the the discourse around Muslims and Middle Easterners, and which is similar, you know, it's always this othering and this threat, and it, it's gotten very exhausting for me. I'm really reconsidering moving back to Mexico. I, I, I love Mexico a lot, and I spend a lot of time there, and I just feel exhausted of being part of this, but at the same time, I've been in uh, New York City for 20 years. So I, and I love it. And one of the reasons why I love it is because I feel in New York, we have something different than anywhere else in the country where people are allowed to remain who they are. Like there's not a mainstream people try to adapt to. So you have communities of, let's say, Persians and Moroccans and Mexicans that remain Mexican. They're not trying to become. Well, they're trying to become American in the legal sense, but they keep their cultures and their customs. So that I, I really love. But the border situation is extremely problematic, not only for for me and for the U.S., but for Mexico as well. Because, I mean, Mexico is right now flooded with immigrants from all over the world, both the kind of immigrants who just want to get out of the U.S., Europe, and Canada, because they're tired of the way, let's say, COVID has restricted their lives or just the role of these powerful countries in the world. So I, I, I just came back from Mexico and I was extremely surprised to see how many people are trying to legally um, stay in Mexico. And there, you see all these signs everywhere, 
if you need immigration help to stay legally in Mexico. So this is very surprising to me. But we also have so, so, so many immigrants from countries that are really struggling, like Venezuela, Colombia, the Central American countries, Cuba. Mexico is not a very poor country economically, but we don't have the resources to deal with an influx of like millions of people who either want to stay there working or are waiting to cross to the U.S. So we ended up with so, so, so many people. And this is problematic because whereas some of them are able to find work, others are not. And, and the system is not, you know, wealthy or, or, or strong enough to sustain this influx of, of people who suddenly appeared in Mexico City. So all these people are trying to work and, and live in Mexico. And then there's a set of people who are like waiting to cross to the U.S., but they got stuck in Mexico. So it's complicated from from all angles, not just from the immigration to like Mexico also has a lot of problems with immigration from countries that are really struggling economically. And that's an interesting perspective, because definitely here, the story we're told is that it's brown people, right? trying to flood this country through those border walls or border towns. And there's no mention of the fact that, yes, I'm sure you're getting an influx of Africans and and Middle and Syrians, uh, people fleeing any parts of the world that are really challenging and have decided that that is a good place to be able to cross into the U.S., right? But we don't hear those stories. So as far as how you navigate this country, being that aware and being that acutely attuned to the nuances and the complexities of this issue, how do you deal with it emotionally in terms of, so during the day, since you don't look like the typical Mexican that Americans always picture, how do you deal with people assuming that you're not that you're something else. I'm so tired of it that when I don't want to engage in this conversation, which repeats itself sometimes five to 10 times a day whenever I interact with somebody, and the worst thing, it happens to me. Sometimes if I don't feel like engaging, I say some country that I know this person doesn't even know what it is. So I'll say, I'm from Tunisia, and then I don't get any questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I get, the complexities of navigating this country. Yeah, I get asked, where are you from? And when I say Philadelphia, inadvertently, I know what's coming. No, where are you really from? And I'm like, do you mean where is my family from, right? I get how Americans like to put people in boxes. But what is more painful, to get that question asked by your own people or to get that question asked by an American person that you can sometimes kind of chalk up to being ignorant. I'm going to ask this because I'm, you know, of my awareness through my husband's career, but even the Mexican novellas and the, the newscasters that are, you know, dominate the Telemundo and Univision and all these, you know, Spanish-speaking networks— they all look like you. They look European. And it's very rare to see somebody that you picture as Mexican because they deliver your food or they're bussing your table or whatever stupid 
understanding we have about Mexican people are never seen really, right? And they're and therefore never given voice to the country. Yes. This is uh, extremely problematic and I've been paying more and more attention to this because there's been a lot of, you know, intellectual discourse about this, like academics writing about this issue. This needs to change. No, you will never see uh, indigenous people on TV or in the novelas. Or, But I've, I feel a little bit hopeful because there is right now a lot of discussion about how to step away from this colorism, racism, classicism that, that exists in our society. So a lot of listeners are going to be blown away by this conversation, I'm going to assume, because they're maybe not quite aware of America, uh, of Mexican history. And more importantly, we don't understand the nuances and the complexities of the different groups that make up the country. So let's go back to you arriving in the U.S. at the age of 18 and not with any support from your family. How challenging was that? And how did you get from Texas to New York? Because that's quite a that's quite a journey. I now had to work, you know, a part time job at school, which I had. I was tutoring, writing and other things. And then I had to get also a full time job and I was going to school full time. But I was 18 and full of energy. So I studied psychology for my undergrad and I loved my degrees. It was a wonderful time, despite being challenging. And, uh, you know, my parents realized that I was not going to go back. And then my original plan was to study a PhD in psychology and be a be a professor and academic. But I realized that most of my friends who were doing that would, you know, have to accept living wherever there is a open academic position. So you cannot choose where you live if you go into academia. And I didn't feel I had, you know, the strength to go, let's say, to Iowa or somewhere where I'm going to be super foreign. And I decided to go to law school at the last minute. I decided on, on Columbia because it was New York City. So that's how I ended up here. This really changed my relationship with my family. Like my, my father began to respect me very much our relationship changed and we became very close. I mean, even when I left, I never stopped seeing my family. I, I, I love them. So my father was over the moon about the fact that I was doing so well that I got into Columbia Law School. And so he, he began to treat me with much more respect. And then when I moved to New York, you know, being uh, 22 years old, I... Autonomy. Autonomy, yes. I'm going to ask the question I sometimes ask my interviewees. Your family sounds incredibly, you said, suffocating. And yet your entire story has been about you fighting and fleeing for your autonomy, your independence. So do you think that your drive and your desire and ability willingness to take such risks is your nature or could it also be partly nurture? I think my nature, because since I was very, very, very small, like I remember having to take a flight alone when I was five years old or something like this. And 
I remember feeling very offended because my mom asked the flight attendants to keep an eye on me. I felt like I'm completely grown up and able to to do this on my own. I had this from a very, very young age. I mean, there are recordings of me at two saying, you know, when I was little and now that I can do this and that. I think it's very much my nature. Like my mom said, I was a feminist since the age of three. And by that, she means that I was constantly observing, you know, the inequalities and like oppression of women. And I, I, I really, really didn't like it. So I do think it's my nature because my sister, for example, she's not like this at all. And we grew up in the same environment. So I think uh, partially nurture, of course, because it made me more aware of, you know, this deep need I had. But I do feel I was extremely independent and and extremely aware of things that children probably never considered because all my friends from high school thought that they had no problem. In fact, most of them live in this same town and they just, you know, keep following in their family's footsteps. And so I I do think it's like, I would say like 70% nature just because of incidents that I have in, in, in videos or recordings from, you know, the, since the age of two years old. So, yeah. And then if you could look back, do you have any regret about the fact that you left your country and the things that you faced and the things that you started to understand about your own self, but also your own country? I think my only regret is that I didn't at some point sort of stop uh, living in this survival mode until very recently, I, I began to just look back at my life and realize that I've been really living like that 18-year-old runaway girl. And it's like this impulse of survival that is no longer relevant to my life. But if you had to do it again, would you do it again? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's the best thing I did, of course. Yeah. That's a great place to end. So I'm going to ask you the last question. Um, Is there a song that resonates with you or in some way describes your life? And what is the song and why? I grew up listening mostly to jazz. So I think any song by like Charlie Parker or Louis Armstrong, it's very comforting to me because at home we were only allowed to listen to like jazz and classical music. So I still to this day when I feel homesick or like I want to go back to my childhood, I listen to to jazz. So I think, yeah, Charlie Parker, Louis Armstrong would be songs that remind me very much of my childhood. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Pala, for doing this. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they go ask me why I do it. I'm going to say this because we going to be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. It's
If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.